Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we pay tribute to the rich life and remarkable legacy of the so-called King of Calypso, Harry Belafonte. The musician, actor, artist, and longtime rights activist died today in New York City at the age of 96. Author of Becoming Belafonte, Judith Smith joins me to share her thoughts on his passing. The battle to save inner city Chinatowns in five major North American communities, including Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal, is the focus of a new documentary called Big Fight in Little Chinatown. Writer and director Karen Cho joins me to talk about the film and an upcoming Canadian screening tour coming to a city near you. With the NHL playoffs hitting high gear, fans will be getting out their lucky jerseys, their lucky hats, you name it. We all have our superstitions and we all have our rituals when it comes to trying to help our team to victory, to see if the gods can't smile on our side tonight. We find out why it's so important to fans to be part of that process. But first, more than 100,000 public service workers, federal public service workers, have been on strike for a week now. We look at what the sticking points still are. Some expected this strike to be over fairly quickly. It hasn't been. What the impact has and is going to be, and whether there is any end in sight. We're going to start off tonight, though, with the ongoing strike by uh, federal workers, federal public service workers. It's going to head into its second week tomorrow. The the strange thing is, uh, early on, at least when it started last Wednesday, a lot of people figured this mightn't last for too, too long. Uh, Workers made good on their promise to ramp up their picket efforts today. Hundreds of them marched this morning across the Portage Bridge between Ottawa and Gatineau, Quebec. They also limited entry to the Prime Minister's Office building and the Treasury Board headquarters. Treasury Board, of course, is their uh, their boss, or at least the, uh, the, the department that handles the negotiations with federal public servants. Federal ministers say they are watching for blockades of critical roads and infrastructure. That sort of came up over the weekend. We don't know if that will happen. That would certainly be... Uh, step up in the pressure tactics by uh, the Public Service Alliance of Canada. More than 100,000 of the union's members walked off the job last Wednesday after the union and the federal government couldn't reach a new contract deal. They've been trying now for quite some time. They've been without a contract since back in 2021. There are still about 47,000 workers on the job. They're deemed essential. Now, Yesterday, Treasury Board President Mona Fortier sent an open letter to striking public servants and all Canadians, basically outlining where the government stands. She outlined four main areas of disagreement uh, between the two sides, wages, teleworking, outsourcing contracts, and seniority rules in the event of layoffs. Now, she said yesterday that uh, the government wants a fair deal, wants to reach a fair deal, but so far, the union continues to make demands it can't meet. The PSAC continues to insist on demands that are unaffordable and would severely impact our ability to deliver services to Canadians. That's Mona Fortier yesterday. Of course, the rest of us are starting to feel the impact of this. One of the major areas is passports. Uh, The federal government saying only urgent passport applications should be submitted now. Regular renewals will not be processed during the strike. Social Development Minister Karina Gould says there could be backlogs again. I do recommend to Canadians not to submit an application for a passport unless it is urgent because under the strike conditions, which are in law, they are unable to process those passports. 
So as we head into week two, is there an end in sight? Joining me now is Alison Braley-Ratai. She's an associate professor of labor studies at Brock University. Alison, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ben. So here we are, uh, day six, heading, doesn't look like we're heading into day seven. This one feels like it's gone on longer, perhaps, than expected. Uh, where do you think the sticking points are right now? Well, I mean, Mona Fortier from the uh, Treasury Board issued that uh, uh, open letter to Canadians and, and to PSAC members. Uh, that was yesterday, I believe, mm-hmm. where she outlines, uh, you know, the four the four remaining issues. And, and of those four, uh, the two that we have, you know, consistently been hearing about as sort of rising to the top uh, are wages and telework. So whatever wiggle room there might be for, you know, the other issues that she identified as, as remaining outstanding, it really does seem like wages and, and telework are the main issues and the main sticking points between the parties. Well, we can start with the wages because I know that they're, I mean, at least last we saw, they were relatively far apart. You know, the, the union looking for something like 13, nearly 14% over three years. And this three years goes back, by the way. They've been without a contract for a while. And the government mm-hmm. looking at something closer to nine. I mean, it, it, there's obviously some issues here with how much the federal government wants to pay and how much, also how much they want to be seen to be paying. Yes, no, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. The uh, government has been quite clear, I think, quite explicit uh, about breaking the seal in a in a manner of speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be you know equitable with regard to or what they offered other units that 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 they did manage to get arrangements with and agreements with. so they they want to be sort of in line with that. Uh, but uh, Monoforte also signaled quite explicitly that there was uh, a desire not to put upward pressure for wage demands with regard to even in the private sector, so not just government and federal uh, workers, but even in in other industries. So uh, that's clearly a concern of hers. They did move from the original uh, offer of, I think it was like 8.2% up to the 9% that they had been sticking with since last week. We understand that the PSAC did make some movement on wages. It came down from 13.25, I think, over three years. But we don't know what the new number is. They're mum about what that number is at this time. Alison, Alison, what do you make of that argument? Because I know from the Bank of Canada, clearly the Bank of Canada governors talked about trying to avoid upward pressure on wages mm-hmm. and what impact that could have on bringing down inflation. But I've also been reading, and you know, economists have been talking about that. I've also been reading others saying it's just not the case. Like this is not going to spill over into into specifically into private mm-hmm. negotiations. That this is a bit of a red herring. What do you, what do you make of of, of the, this idea that? public servants can't get wage increases because everyone else will want one too. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack with that, actually. Right. So, I mean, I'd like to start with the idea that I don't think it's coincidental that this particular union, which uh, is not especially strike happy, uh, I mean, we have not seen an, a nationwide walkout in decades. Uh, they certainly didn't have a great time of things when Tony Clement was head of the Treasury Board under right. the Conservatives. And yet we still didn't see this. So, I mean, I think there is something sort of particular in this moment, an enormous amount to do with the extraordinary inflationary pressures uh, that workers uh, are feeling everywhere. Uh, I think it has to do with some of the changes that the pandemic itself brought with it, you know, in some ways more polarization, but also uh, more of a unwillingness to just sort of take business as usual. Uh, I think that ethos is kind of in, in the air as well. And I think all of this also happens in the context 
of uh, a wealth gap that we started talking about as a, as a mainstream conversation over a decade ago, and that hasn't well been rectified at all. So when you put all that together, it's not entirely surprising that this union, which, you know, again, is not particularly known for, for uh, being, you know, strike happy, if one might put it that way, that they're going out at this time. You know, I, I do believe that there is something to the idea that other unions, even those in the private sector, uh, would look to any good movement that a union, either public or private, was able to get in the context specifically of what we know are enormous inflationary pressures. And the fact that unions have not been able to negotiate increases that keep pace with that. So I do think there is something to that idea. I think that the bigger problem might be the focus on how much of an impact this would actually have uh, on inflation across right. the board. Okay. Now, I'm not an economist, so I want to be very careful about not going down that road too far. But I know there certainly are a, a lot of economists, I'm thinking Jim Stanford, I mean, Yelmesian, you know, people at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, that certainly would debate this idea that, uh, you know, the, the sky is going to fall if workers are actually able <laughs> to keep pace with inflation. Yeah. And in this case, and I guess the telework uh, file works into that as well, because essentially, if you're making employees go back to the office, it costs them money to go to work. Right. And so you're you're yeah. taking away. I mean, this is where because I've been interested as to why this also continues to be a sticking point uh, between the two mm-hmm. sides is this idea of telework. And I guess uh, just for listeners to be reminded, um Management, the Treasury boards, quote unquote, would like to be able, would like management to be able to dictate where people work, or at least mm-hmm. how often they're in the office. And the union really wants this to be codified in the contract. Uh, this is yeah. an interesting one because it's kind of new when it comes to to these sorts of negotiations. Yeah, and actually, I, this one is the one that has captured my attention the most, I think, in the last few days, uh, in part because we know that. From the very get go, after restrictions were lifted and the workers were told, you know, come on back to uh, to your office, uh, PSAC immediately said, you know, this is going to be an issue for us. We really want to talk this through. We really want to make this a bargaining issue. We really want this in our contract. And the Treasury Board was was sort of equally adamant that that's not something that they were interested or prepared to do. So this is something we have seen brewing and have known uh, is, is going to be coming down the pike. And then last week, uh, Mona Fauci said something about tabling a proposal with regard to telework. So, so there I was thinking, oh, wow, they've actually now, you know, they're, they're going to actually bargain this at the table as part of their contract. That is kind of a sea change. That's very significant. And then it turns out that I was mistaken about that because yesterday uh, she actually said, you know, no, we're holding the line in the sand. We're basically willing to review the language of a policy around telework, but we're not prepared to put it into the collective agreement. So it looks like that will remain at this time a, a sticking point. And it really is actually a significant thing for the union to get it into the collective agreement. And when Mona Fauci was asked, you know, why is it so important that it not be in there? Like, what is the big major issue? Uh, her, her response was was basically, if it's in the collective agreement, then the union can grieve it. What that basically means is, if it's in the collective agreement, then the employer can't just change it. You can't break the rules. In the contract. Right. <laughs> can't yeah. break the rules. Right. And if they do break the rules, it can be grieved because there's a process for that. If it remains a, an employer policy, well, sure, they can negotiate that with the union. But then at the end of the day, 
there aren't a lot of avenues for the union to then challenge it if they were to just unilaterally change it. So it is actually quite significant, I think, this this issue about where it's going to live. Alison Braley retires with us. She's an associate professor of labor studies at Brock University. We're talking about the ongoing uh, public sector strike in Canada. 155,000 members of the Public Sector Alliance of Canada, about 100 and some odd thousand are out of work, are off the job right now and picketing. So, uh, Alison, you looked a lot into sort of the public mood around the education workers strike back in Ontario last year that people will remember because it ended pretty quickly. The back to work legislation was revoked. Public sentiment was clearly on the side of the strikers. In this case, it feels a lot more nuanced as to where the public's going to land on this. And I get the impression that puts pressure on both sides to try to figure this out before both sides end up being looked at badly by the general public. Yeah. So, I mean, with regard to the education workers, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was polling done and uh, the the public uh, seemed very much to be uh, on the side of uh, the workers. And I mean, I think there are some groups of workers, you know, not a lot of them, but there are some groups of workers who kind of have the benefit of public sympathy out of the gate. So uh, the people that come to my mind uh, tend to be nurses. Nurses tend to have a lot of public sympathy kind of out of the gate. Yep. The education workers clearly did. I mean, they're mostly women. They're working with children. They're working often with troubled children. I mean, there were, of course, janitorial staff. And, you know, they clearly were not making stupendously good wages. There's the inflationary pressures that we talked about earlier. Public support was with them. Federal civil servants don't enjoy the benefit generally speaking, of public sympathy out of the gate. I mean, I think we all know the sort of stereotypes, uh, and they are stereotypes, and of course they're unfair, as stereotypes tend to be, uh, but there's the stereotype of the uh, overpaid, underworked federal uh, public servant. So when there was some polling done, and there was some polling done by Angus Reid just the other day, uh, it demonstrated that the public was fairly divided, but there was some, not, you know, we're not talking 70%, uh, but there was public support for at least some of uh, the workers' demands. And interestingly, the telework issue was one of the ones where the majority of, uh, of those polled did, in fact, uh, support the, the workers' demand there. And I think that the PSAC, uh, you know, would do well to, you know, tap into some of the things that make their demands, particularly their wage demands, because those are the ones that, you know, get people a little bit more exercised, right? You know, I'm not making this. Why are they making this? What about my taxes, the public purse? I mean, there are some. Yeah, that, that's that's what we're hearing from listeners for sure. You know, that, you know, what, why just take your, to take your 9% or take your, take your 9% and go home, essentially is what the, what that's come, what we're hearing on this side. Yeah, and that, and that that sentiment is is not you know I mean I'm not surprised to hear you say that that's the sentiment that you're hearing. I think the PSAC you know could you know ratchet up the messaging around why this fight is actually sort of everyone's fight, and it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about how others you know will tend to to look at any increases that other groups are getting in the particular moment of these extraordinary pressures. Now, of course, does it mean that, you know, because you get this, that some other group is going to absolutely get it? No, of course, it doesn't mean that. But certainly, it does provide something that you can look toward and and start making your arguments and start galvanizing your members to say, well, if they got it, maybe we should also be asking for that. Maybe, you know, we aren't the cause of all this inflation. Maybe we shouldn't be uh, the ones who are paying the price. So I do think that there's a way of, you know, connecting this to the broader cause of workers themselves, which is that, you know, all of us are facing these extraordinary pressures. 
Some of us are obviously better able to withstand them than others, uh, but there's a whole bunch of workers who can't withstand them very well at all because everything, uh, everything important is going up in price. Well, Allison, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Well, we all have our superstitions, right? But lots of stuff. But when it comes to sports, it feels like they're even more magnified, especially this time of year. Of course, it's the NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs. But let's talk hockey since it is our, our game. Um, Oilers are up 3-2 on the Kings in the at the end of one. So I imagine there's a lot of Oilers fans. Now, I lo- know you're listening to the game on 630 Chad tonight. But I know a lot of hockey fans out there will have their lucky hats, their lucky jerseys, their lucky socks, their lucky drink. You sit in a certain spot. You watch the game a certain way. Certain friends come over. Other friends are not allowed to come over. You watch in a certain room. There's all kinds of things we do to try to swing the odds in our favor, to have the sporting god shine on our team that night, right? Um, and it's it's remarkable. I was saying off the top of the show that my grandmother used to refuse to watch her CFL games, her favorite football team, because she was convinced that if she watched, they lost. Now, we know athletes are well-known. Athletes are well-known for their rituals and their superstitions. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players ever, still wore his college championship University of North Carolina shorts underneath his Chicago Bulls uniform on his way to his six NBA titles because he thought, that'll help me. Patrick Roy, of course, one of the most dominant goalies the NHL has ever seen, and he played for my hometown, Montreal Canadiens. He had the longest list of rituals, including talking to his goalposts, something he did a lot. And Serena Williams, apparently, someone who certainly didn't need on talent alone, was one of the greatest tennis players, if not the greatest tennis player to ever set foot on a court. Uh, She used to wear the same pair of socks if she was on a run on a winning run in a tournament, which happened a lot, I would imagine. So those are the rituals we know from the athletes themselves, but they can actually have an impact on a game, right? And maybe we can too if we're in the stands, but why is it that we that we adhere to these, these rituals and superstitions when we're watching from home? I was looking for a good example of this, and the best one I could find was Will Forte on Conan O'Brien uh, some years ago explaining a very strange ritual at an L.A. Clippers basketball game. I went to a Clippers game with my friend Matt Rice, and uh, I get nervous during the game, so at some point I always bite my fingernails, and I took one of my fingernails out, and I put it on uh, Matt's sweater. (laughs) That's the kind of thing I do as a friend, and he is a friend of mine, so he'll accept it. And he (laughs) went up to me, and he took it off his sweater, and he put it in his mouth. (laughs) And... Right then, the Clippers threw up this crazy three-point shot that made it in. Right. So as a, we were just going, oh, my God, that must be the combination of, of Will's fingernails <laughs> and Matt's saliva or Matt's mouth is a lucky thing. So we go to, we go to halftime, come back. The Clippers are, are now down by quite a bit. So we, we all said, oh, well, what, you know, why don't we bite off another fingernail and put it in Matt's mouth? I did it. And the Clippers stormed back and won the game. Wow, yeah. really? So yeah. you're, And you're attributing this to him eating, uh, not eating, but just holding in his mouth. He didn't eat it. He's not an animal. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... You can see just how ridiculous it sounds, but wow, that's where, we, that's where we get to when it comes to these things. So why is it that we do this? Jason Parker is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Old Dominion University. He joins us now. Jason, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, I'm excited about this. And yes, reinforcement. I mean, the things we do to make sure our 
team wins. Now, one of the things, so I'm going through like all of these things and looking at these things. And the first off, right. like my partner goes, by the way, you don't just talk to your goalposts. You also talk to your paper before you turn it in. You talk to, <laughs> you talk right. to your phone. You talk to your Frisbee before you throw it on a final putt. And yeah, because, we call behavior superstitious because we did something in this ritual and it worked and we think it won. It's like, well, right. that's why it worked. We did it. So we, like, associate it. And the first time is, like, by chance. But here's the funny thing. If it works the first time, we'll do it a second. If it works the second, we'll do it a third, and then we start to elaborate. So we start getting our rituals bigger and more and more to them. So we start adding things to them. I mean, I love like uh, Gretzky. The first thing he would do when he goes out for practice is he would first shot miss wide to the right. I'm going to get right. that miss out of my system. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and get that miss goal out of my system. Cause from here it goes where it needs to go. And he was known for putting baby powder on his stick to get that soft shot in there. Amazing. And, but I get that is. stuff. Like, like I get the athletes being superstitious. There's all kinds of funny ones about baseball players yeah. and their rituals. I mean, they're the ones playing. That I understand. It's the, the fans. fans we're, we are the just fans. as bad. I, we are, we just, are just, just as bad. We are just as so why, why is that? You're, you well, too. And, and you yeah, study this stuff. Work. Yeah, I, 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 I always miss the kickoff, you know, on my favorite team. Um, and when I'm any hockey game, okay, I go in, I've had a beverage, I've had a snack, I get a little bit of a second period nap. And if I don't, we don't win. So don't <laughs> wake me during my second period nap. <laughs> and my buddies know period. this. I sit right. there and I give me, it's been a long night. The game starts at seven, you know, and I say, you know, and if I don't, we don't win. So they're like, Jay, you know, Hey, 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 you know, and the, but the really, really fascinating things is we can look at reinforcement. We really think these things work because they seem to work. And I mean, like in gambling, you only have to be reinforced like one out of four or five times to keep doing it. That's it. So our superstitions don't have to work every time. Only we love them. We love them too, though. I mean, I know part of it is superstition, right? So sometimes it can it can get a bit out of control if you sort of. Right. You know, I know people who take this very seriously. At the yeah, same yeah, time, we kind of yeah. like the ritual, right? Like we like putting on the, the same ritual, jersey. Yeah. The ritual puts the ritual puts us into it. And this is what it's like. This is how the ritual puts us into it. Okay, so when this is where the neuroscience come in. Okay, on EEG electroencephalograph, looking at a brainwave pattern when we are on a winning. Streak, we have a brainwave pattern. So superstitions and our ritual of getting dressed, you know, like getting, you know, like putting on your uniform from the left side to the right side as you put your whole uniform on beforehand and you make sure that's all done in your superstitions because that's how you right. always get dressed. You know, right. but what that also does is it puts our brain in that motion. So we start getting into it. And this, to me, is like, like to go away neuroscience. So let's like go, go science in sports. Uh, mobile EEG, looking at the brain, you can predict before a player swings if they're going to hit the ball or not. The brain goes hit or not. So your ritual puts you in a winning mode. You're in a winning mode when it comes to take the shot, your clutch, you don't choke. 
Right. And, yeah. and, you, and, we, and how do we, but how do we transport that from even from, <laughs> even, even from the amateur, even from the amateur, yes. say you're, say you're playing pickup baseball, right? How do you transport that from the diamond to your lazy boy? That's the one that's Man, always you, gotten you, me. You, yeah. you play the same song. You, you put together True. the same food. You have everything set up where it's supposed to be and everything sets to get that energy there. I mean, you also like see this in stadiums. Um, I mean, you know, hey, it's third down and people start jingling their keys, man, you know, and, you know, like, you know, shut it down. And they start doing that also at the end of a basketball and close out the game. Uh, The Red Wings, they start throwing octopi, you know. Yeah, I remember. remember They start throwing octopi. And um, I've got it here. Um, One one of these guys, I I made a note on this. He actually had his superstition was um, was was actually canceled by his club because they were worried about his health because what he liked to do is chug a thing of Mountain Dew, a, a liter, at the beginning of the game and at halftime, and they were worried about the sugar and caffeine, and they banned his ritual. Yeah, well, I, I, could, I get that one. I get that one. So, but t- one thing I found, because you were telling this last night, I was explaining that uh, part of the inspiration for this was a tweet that I'd seen about uh, a woman in, in Toronto who's, 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 I guess whose partner sat down in a certain chair and the Leafs mounted a comeback and he would refuse to move until the game was over because he figured if I move, this is all going to come crashing to a halt and I'll have to blame myself for it. Uh, but yeah. you were saying that you've, you've, you've been that in your household, you've also been, uh, you've also succumbed to this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah oh, it, it pulls into it. I mean, the first time I, I remember we had to win uh, 10 games. Okay. To, to get our little pennant. And this is when I'm like, you know, 14, 23 cents in my pocket, half chew and stick uh, gum in my back pocket, socks that I was not going to wash, which my mom snuck up and washed on me a couple of times. That was a real problem. Um, but Hey, through 10 games, no, change and it's amazing because um I, I tell my students look hey when you're getting ready for an exam it's okay to have lucky socks right. it's okay to have lucky you know a lucky luck, lucky socks lucky underwear you know hey you put on the big girl panties you put on wonder woman panties okay i bought my my wife i could I, I can say this on radio i'm pretty sure my wife had an interview and she i've said this before she had a big interview. I'm like, honey, for your big interview tomorrow, here's some Wonder Woman panties. Now, I don't know if wow. you wore them or not, but here they she are. Tell you. Some, you know, it's a big day, and here you go. Here's a lucky thing. And did, I she paint, students, did she tell me she painted your nails, too, your toenails? She painted my toenails, game? yeah. She painted them up because she thought it was funny, and then they are teal and orange, and we win. And I'm like, well, you know, hey, we're on a winning streak here. And, uh, you know, hey, um, honey, it's Saturday night, and I know, but, you know, my toes ain't looking so good. So, no, you, if we lose tomorrow— over my toes, okay. That you, you'll, <laughs> because, you'll never forgive yourself. That's that's that's. I'll, but we'll it take goes a quick into break. It makes us a part of the game. See, it now does, we're part of the team. Part. You know, because exactly. that's what it is with being a fan. Because you know, when when um when 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 a team wins the Stanley Cup, okay, and they, or they win the Grey Cup, mm. they fans celebrate with the same amount of emotion and excitement as the players. Now, when they lose, we're just as sad that day. Now, the next day, we're okay. The next right. day, the players are still miserable. But we yeah. have their same highs and lows. So our rituals make us part of the game. So can we break these habits or do we, like, how do we? Well, but, but how do I, I guess they're not harmful, okay. right? They're not harmful. Yeah, you're right. How do we, why, why would we break these habits? Because here's the bottom line, okay? 
superstitions let us, the fans, be part of the game. And it doesn't hurt anything. If, you know, what as little is lost. Superstitious behavior, I mean, and, I mean, like, and I know this, like, like, students do this, like, for grades and all those kind of things, like, crazy. Um, but if the superstition works, awesome. I helped, and I was part of the win. And if not, what did you lose because you wore the same shirt that probably, or the same seat or whatever? It's part of the fun. And the one it thing is. that we must remember before you sign off, what if the rituals work? What I'm if pretty they do sure. What if they do work? So I'm pretty sure that if I don't go through my rituals, something bad's going to happen. Okay? <laughs> so, okay, yeah. look, hey, hey, I, I'm we an all alumni of Virginia Tech. They were at the final mm-hmm. four, and I couldn't make the game on the radio because I only heard the game on the radio, and I listened to that, and I missed it on the radio, and they lost. And, you know, if I had been in the parking lot, on the radio, like won. it was for the last two games, they would have won. They would have won. You know, you, because you I look mean, at the, they, you, yeah. hi, honey, I can't come home yet. Listen to the game on the radio. You know, <laughs> you, you look at this stuff more broadly, though, Jason. I mean, when it comes to superstition broadly, forget sports, but just broadly, yeah. what is it about it that comforts us? Because it does bring a certain, I mean, yeah. there, there are extremes yeah. that we have to watch out for, but it brings us a certain we, psychological comfort. It's, there's a real thing with that. We look for cause and effect relationships to understand the world cause effect so we want a way to understand cause and effect now one way for cause and effect is also looking at correlations now correlations are relationships so we we see a relationship between this thing and this thing and it looks like a cause and effect but it's not okay you smoke you get cancer cause and effect smoking heart disease cause and effect okay walking x number of steps in your team winning not necessarily but it might be correlated and correlated starts looking like causation. So when I get to the game early and I get two cheeseburgers and I'm in seat 42C, we always win. Okay? So it's related and it makes sense out of a complex world and a complex situation. It gives us a sense of control and it's fun it because is. I'm part of the team now. And that's the thing I think people miss when they talk about this is why are we superstitious? Because it's also fun because right. we're now part, we're part of it. You know, uh, this, this, although it might have been coincidental, um, not to me. And the thing is, teams also get favorite lucky players, favorite fans, people that always come in, somebody they always see, you know, a, a, a fan who's been a met who is like 102 and went to every game since 1940, you know, and they yeah. bring him in. How are you going to lose tonight? You know, can't lose tonight. And it gets everybody in a mood and it gets them in that position. And, and you, suddenly. Do you think because We're, because sports is in some ways so important and yet not so important that unless you've gambled a ton of money on it, obviously knock on wood. Right. But do you think do you think why why is it that sports attracts? Do you think it, being a sports it fan? It, yeah, and, and it that cross, people are more superstitious. Lines. Yeah, right. It, it crosses well. Sports cross lines, so it doesn't matter what your job is or what your what your career is or what any of your beliefs are. You've been a fan for X number of years and you meet a stranger who also has been a fan for X number of years. You're not strangers. You now have friends and you have things to talk about and you talk about those things and you talk about those rituals, you know, and you know, it's nothing like seeing somebody going up when they're going right for the, you know, right there for that final, you know, you know, shot in a basketball game and going, yeah, he never misses, you know, and right. he misses. You know, hey, Mr. Automatic, you know, he's Mr. Automatic. He won't, you know, and that that makes it feel like you you were part of it. 
And that is just such joy. And again, we get the same joy they do. So we've gotten everything. We didn't have to go to practice. We didn't have to work out. We got all the joy, but we don't get the paycheck. No, but we do get the, we do get the enjoyment. We actually, if anything, we spend money on it, right? Because you have to go. Your rituals are right. sometimes involve a certain right. outlay of cash. Your favorite hat, your favorite shirt, your favorite team jersey, whatever it may be. Uh, Jason Parker, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I guess we need to know uh, the painted toenails, the teal and blue. Yeah. Did, did, did yeah. the teal and orange rather? Did they work? Did it work? Yes, it did. That was the Miami Dolphins in their season, right. and that was when they ran um, their whole their whole wild office with the Rick, offense with the Ricky and Ronnie show. And we had Joe Pennington, right. and out yes. of nowhere, we went from a losing team to the playoffs, and we made the playoffs. And I swear, I if my season. wife had done my big toe better, we would have won that game because <laughs> she messed up on the big toe. There was a smudge what... on the big toe, and if that big toe had been perfect and she pinned a dolphin on it. We would have been in that, a championship game. That's where I get worried sometimes is when it starts to drag other people into our, <laughs> to our own place. Jason, thanks hey, so much she, for saying yes to this. She shouldn't have painted my toenails in the first place, all right? That's that was right. Her fault. She started it. She started it. <laughs> Jason Parker, thanks so much. Have a great night. Thank you. You have a great night. Well, you probably heard a lot of talk uh, the past little while about what's going on in Khartoum, what's going on in Sudan right now. We'll try and clear it up for you try at least to bring some explanation to you exactly what the situation is there on the ground also why canada's concerned why foreign nations are trying to get their nationals out and are having trouble uh the federal government today was welcoming news of a 72-hour ceasefire in that uh, East African country. The U.S.-Saudi brokered pause came into effect late last night. There's already been several reports of it being violated, but seems to be holding tenuously. That is the evacuations of hundreds of foreigners continued uh, by land and air today from Sudan. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that the Canadian effort under is underway to conduct airlifts, that there are two Navy vessels waiting off the coast of Sudan at this point. Uh, he told reporters in Ottawa today that Canada has had resources in the region uh, for many days to try to evacuate Canadians and is coordinating with its allies because there are limited places for airlifts to happen. We have uh, assets in the region. Uh, we're looking at doing direct airlifts lifts of uh, Canadians and dependents. We're also engaged diplomatically. I just spoke with the chairperson of the African Union this morning. Uh, to continue to offer any support Canada can have in calling for a ceasefire and looking for resolution. Uh, it's a situation we'll continue to do. What's the lay on here? There's you know, discussions around uh, with the different countries on who, who gets the land when, who gets to do the airlift uh, uh, work quickly. We also have uh, a couple of uh, ships off the coast of on the Red Sea in, uh, in uh, for, uh, Port Sudan, uh, a frigate and, uh, and a supply ship. Uh, Canada is very much engaged. We will continue to be. So uh, that's the situation right now. At, uh, at least 100 Canadians have made it out today. There's 1,700 there registered at least. They're registered with the government. Uh, in a statement this evening, the Canadian forces are assisting apparently with transportation efforts to the extent that conditions allow. Now, the, one of the big issues here is that the main airport is in down, is basically in central Khartoum, the capital, and that's where the fighting is taking place. So it's very difficult for them to coordinate. And there are a lot of people to try to get out. If you remember back to what happened in Afghan Kabul uh, back Back about a year and a half ago, you know, it's not the same, but the situation is such that when everyone's trying to get to the airport at the same time and planes can't come and go, the airport, of course, at this point uh, has been closed for a while. Yesterday, the prime minister announced alongside the German president 
that 58 Canadians had been extracted from the country by German aircraft. So what exactly is going on? There are many different, fa- you know, essentially this is a fight between two factions to try and get to the bottom of what's happening, why the situation happened so quickly and that, you know, uh, many foreign nationals were caught there, let alone civilians caught in the crossfire themselves. Uh, Halim Madani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University. And he joins us now. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So tell me a bit about the situation now, because we've seen many ceasefires over the past little while. This one seems to be hanging tenuously. Uh, Obviously, important that they try to calm things down to try to bring some stability to the situation, get some people out, get civilians to safety, allow them to get supplies and so on. Um, Well, I think the the reason this one is, um, you put it uh, exactly right, it's quite tenuous. It is holding in uh, a number of parts or neighborhoods in the city, but then the other parts of the city where uh, aerial bombardments and the street battles continue. But I think the reason that this one is uh, holding on a little bit uh, has to do with the pressure that's uh, been put upon these two generals who've been fighting for the last uh, um, week or so. Um, In particular, the United States and Saudi Arabia, which have a great deal of influence on the two factions and the two generals. One of them is the General Burhan, who is the head of the army, national army, and the other one is General uh, Degalo, who's head of a very powerful paramilitary militia. Uh, They see that their conflict is really one that is characterized by a zero-sum game. Whoever uh, wins this battle in Khartoum uh, gets to consolidate his military power and also eventually take over really the presidency or control of the country. So um, the past ceasefires, there were three three ceasefire attempts before this one did not hold. But I think this one has to do with their own um, understanding that uh, they're losing any legitimacy and support uh, from the international community in particular and their you know, historical <clears throat> supporters. So I think it's the pressure really uh, on the part of not only of Saudi Arabia and the United States, but all other um, um, actors, all other uh, foreign countries that have put pressure on them. So they're also trying to gesture to the international community. Each one is vying for support uh, from um, outside powers. And I think that's why it's holding. Unfortunately, um, it is uh, now, it seems to be on the ground that uh, the aerial bombardments continue and the fighting is escalating. So um, following some of the departure of the foreign nationals and diplomatic staff and some dependents, I think, unfortunately, the violence continues and it's likely to increase. You've been speaking to people there, I gather, right? I mean, this is this is people on the ground. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of talk here about foreign nationals, Canadians and others trapped in, in, in Khartoum at this point in time. But we also think of all those, all the Sudanese who are caught in this crossfire uh, who don't have the opportunity to get out, at least not. Uh, there's no there's there's no airlift coming for them, mostly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's absolutely no question. I do speak, uh, you know, regularly about uh, five or six times a day. I have family there who are also trying to uh, flee uh, across the borders, uh, immediate family and also many, many relatives. So I keep uh, very close touch with with everyone uh, throughout uh, the country and also in the city. I think that there is a a general consensus understanding that it is absolutely understandable that, uh, you know, foreign um, countries would want to evacuate their uh, 
their, you know, essential staff, their diplomatic staff. And of course, uh, increasingly, you know, the Canadian government initially was not able to uh, even make a statement about evacuating their their uh, nationals uh, there, Sudanese uh, Canadians. But they are making a great deal of effort over the last couple of days. They've uh, changed policy, so to speak, and are trying to do their best. However, of course, as you put it, uh, the majority of Sudanese or all Sudanese um, uh, cannot really leave. Uh, and that's a really big problem. The problem on the part of Sudanese that I speak to in the capital city is that they're uh, deeply concerned that uh, all of these countries, um, after evacuating their essential staff and uh, their nationals, will abdicate um, um, their responsibility for not only a ceasefire, but also for humanitarian assistance. Um, this is um, a huge problem because um, these actors, particularly the you know UK and the United States, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, countries that have already evacuated their their essential staff were, um, you know, had organized themselves and were supposed to oversee a transition to civilian democracy. <clears throat> and so for the majority of Sudanese, they feel that that is now um, essentially a lost cause and that there, this would be accompanied by, by an abdication of what Sudanese, of course, feel is the responsibility on the part of the international community, not only to continue to put pressure on these generals to return them to the table with other civilian leaders and political parties to oversee the country to democracy, but also um, at the moment, at present, the, the, the most important concern is the lack of um, support in terms of humanitarian assistance. As you know, the humanitarian crisis has deepened. The majority of Sudanese now are short of water, electricity, and increasingly they are short of food. And I'm uh, talking about uh, the majority of Sudanese in the capital city. So the economic or rather the humanitarian crisis is extremely dire. And the biggest concern is not only will the international community not support uh, people fleeing, but also will not support um, those who have remained. And the majority of Sudanese, of course, continue to suffer and are being held hostage by the personal ambitions of these two generals. Right. Who were supposed to pave the way for 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 general elections, right? This was the whole point when, when the former, uh, when the former president, uh, Bashir, was it Bashir, who was, who was, who was ousted, um, Omar al-Bashir, this was supposed to pave the way for, for sort of democracy to some extent. And here we have these two generals, well, one, two generals fighting over, over what they were supposed to have handed over. And so clearly the concern is that if everyone leaves, they're simply going to continue fighting it out and they're going to fight it. As you mentioned, they see it as a zero sum game. Whoever wins, wins. They they do because the stakes for them are very high. First of all, they're not the primary stakeholders of uh, of you know of course uh, advocating for democracy. As some of your listeners probably have heard, uh, in 2019, a very important uh, pro democracy revolution occurred, overthrowing uh, 30 years of the, of the dictatorship of the ousted President Omar Bashir. Um, at that time, the international community uh, was very supportive of the transition, at least uh, most of the Western powers, for a transition to democracy. These generals were um, unfortunately uh, coddled from my perspective and there, there was a misunderstanding or rather miscalculation that somehow they could reform these generals into Democrats. And, you know, that is not something or that's not how democracy actually works. And no. so they were given too much power by being given too much support and uh, the support to civil society and the actors and the millions of Sudanese who fought uh, with their lives. Of course, many, many died for democracy were not supported. So I think it was 
as a mistake based on notions of pragmatism. And uh, the ultimate, of course, uh, you know, um, victims have been the Sudanese people. Um, you know, I should say that very simply the disagreement emerged over the integration of the paramilitary force into the national army. Obviously, right. both factions did not want that to happen. I was reading tonight, uh, Khalid, that, that the Canadian government's going to look at perhaps ways to bring at least to unite families here in Canada, uh, uh, Sudanese citizens who have family in Canada to bring them over, similar to as we've seen happen in other conflict zones. I, I, what else, what would you like to see the Canadian government do right now to, to try to help the situation? I think to to be quite uh, honest, I, I've seen you know I've been doing a lot of these interviews since the conflict began. Yeah, I, I see a really positive change, and I've, I see it quickly. You know, I wouldn't just say that I, I don't work for the Canadian government, uh, but yeah. um, I think that what we're seeing is a really understanding that this is very similar to the conflict in Syria and Ukraine, and the Canadian government tried to do very much. What I'm really uh, glad about is the government is moving not only to bring in Canadian nationals, but also to bring in their Dependence. I think there's also an understanding, uh, you know, the government in Ottawa has also extended uh, work permits, for example, or, or uh, residence permits for, for Sudanese here, uh, free of charge. That's a really important start. I've been talking over the past uh, 10 days to Canadi- Sudanese Canadians in Montreal, in Toronto, in Ottawa, who have played a very important role in that as well. Uh, they've really talked and uh, contacted members of parliament to explain to them the situation and also to compare it to other kind of uh, what we call complex humanitarian emergency. So I think that that is really important. Uh, what I would like also, uh, in addition to that, I think that that is going well. What I, what I would like is uh, the Canadian government also has played historically a very important role in terms of humanitarian assistance and providing um, funding and also know-how uh, to uh, the United Nations uh, you know, relief agencies. And right now, the distressing aspect in Sudan itself is the fact that the Sudanese who are left, the majority of Sudanese, do not have access and the UN has uh, not been able to operate, uh, not only in Sudan itself, but across the borders where tens of thousands have, are fleeing. I believe the Canadian government, and it's played this role before, can support, because I've also worked partially with the United Nations, they can uh, support the United Nations, uh, particularly OCHA and the UNHCR, uh, and even help to design, which is what Canadians are really uh, good at. The Canadian government has done that. So I, I would like to see much more um, you know, um, you know, uh, support um, and and uh, movement with respect to expanding the UN operations in Sudan, uh, in Khartoum, in Darfur, in the conflict areas, and also in the border areas where you find refugees and displaced uh, uh, persons by the thousands are, are going. And, and Canada is, is, you know, extremely well placed to do that. Um, and that's the second phase. I talked to the Canadian government folks uh, on the, at the beginning of the conflict, and I saw movement on that <laughs> on, on, in terms of dealing with, uh, with uh, Sudanese Canadian in Sudan. It's a difficult situation, but they, I believe they're doing the best they can with, uh, with their partnership with other, other allies. And, uh, but the, what, is, what I have not seen yet is a really more rigorous approach, a more robust approach with respect to humanitarian assistance. And I, I do think that historically, uh, um, the Canadian government is actually very good at that. Yes, I mean, I think the Canadians will remember back to Darfur, right? Uh, back 20 now, nearly a quarter century ago now. Man, how time flies. But yeah, that, that yeah. how involved Canadians were in Darfur. And also that's parts of the roots of this fight also sort of originated Darfur, the RSF having some some affiliations with the Janjaweed, a name you may remember from, from way back when. Uh, I guess uh, quickly, um, chances for peace in the near future. Does this look like, are these two generals just simply going to fight it out now? Or do you think that uh, they'll be convinced to... Uh, to settle to step 
step down for, or at least cool things out for a bit at this point? That depends on the international community. If it was left up right. to them, of course, they would fight to the death. But right now, and I said that in my first uh, um, interview with CTV on the first day, is that I, I was predicting there would be a stalemate for a variety of reasons we don't have to get into, but it has to do with strategy and who's supporting them, financing, logistics, all of that. Uh, but what's really important is that it does look like it's uh, going to be a protracted one, a stalemate. And here is where the international community uh, really needs to step in. And I think that they need to step in for not only humanitarian reasons, but also geostrategic and pragmatic reasons. Both uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, uh, you know, basically uh, echoed each other in statements about trying to find a political solution. Trudeau talking about, of course, working with the African Union. Blinken said that he wants to get a coalition to deal with the ceasefire and, and, uh, and return Sudan to that transition to civilian democracy. That's based on what Trudeau kind of hinted at, and that is the Canadian's um, uh, resources and interest. And I think that the subtext of that for Trudeau and for Canada and the U.S. is the fact that <clears throat> Sudan is strategically located uh, across not only the Sahel at the Horn of Africa, but very crucially the Red Sea region. Uh, this yes. is a region that uh, Canada, the U.S. and others, I'd, I'd really, to answer your question, I would just encourage your your listeners just to look at the map and see yes, how indeed. important see it is. And, and yeah, there's so much else is. going on. Yes, with Libya and yeah. with, with Yemen, there's so much going on in and around those yeah. regions now. Uh, uh, Khalid Madani, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Speaking of childhood, one of my earliest memories of Chinatown, of course, uh, is watching the one in my hometown of Montreal, one of the oldest in North America, be partially demolished back in the 70s and the 80s. A lot of it was cleared to make way for a huge federal building, uh, the city's conference center, a massive bank building, the Hydro-Quebec building, they're all down where Chinatown once stood. Uh, and it's reduced it really to just a, like a little block, block and a half of uh, stuff. I mean, they pretty much decimated it. Um, and that's not a unique story. Now, you know, I've been to lots of Chinatowns around the world, and some of them have survived better than others. Some of them are in better shape than others. Uh, many cities have more than one, but there's always sort of a traditional inner city one that you would associate, say, Toronto's big one or along Spadina or Vancouver's has its big one, um, of course, and then San Francisco, one of the biggest and the oldest. Uh, here in Victoria, we have the second oldest in North America. It's just a small little one, but it has an incredible history. But there has been a long battle to try to protect those inner city Chinatowns right around the world, right, that are, that are either disappearing or under threat. And with them, the rich history of the communities that have called them home. In many cases, you know, for more than a century, even longer at times now, you think of New York, uh, it's Chinatown is iconic. Uh, the plight of five inner city Chinatowns, all five, which I've actually been to, I've just mentioned all five of them, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, New York City, and San Francisco, are the focus of a 2022 documentary called Big Fight in Little Chinatown by Montreal-based filmmaker Karen Cho. Here's a taste of the trailer. A lot of anger tonight in one of New York's most iconic neighborhoods, Chinatown. Anger over the city's plan to put a so-called community jail there. This is very valuable real estate. We come here to protect our community for the city. This is really a battle for the soul of Chinatown, not only here in New York City, but throughout North America. This is where you can put a freeway through Vancouver's Chinatown to obliterate it. 
So if you want to get rid of the Chinese, you, you train your bullseye, your target, onto Chinatowns. In the face of all the economic pressure due to COVID, due to anti-Chinese racism, developers, they come in, they prey on all these type of vulnerabilities. And if we don't fight back, if we don't organize as a community, that's how we're going to lose everything. There you go. That's a snippet of a documentary called Big Fight in Little Chinatown. Oh, the reason we're talking about it tonight is that the filmmaker Karen Cho is embarking on a Canadian screening tour of the doc with stops next month in Vancouver, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, and Toronto, with return stops in Vancouver and Toronto in June. And here to talk about it and the inspiration for it is Karen Cho, writer and director of Big Fight in Little Chinatown, the collective fight to save Chinatowns across North America. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. You know, we both, I mean, I grew up in Montreal as well. So, I mean, I remember when Chinatown, it felt like Chinatown in Montreal was probably one of the first ones to uh, to suffer under really major gentrification and, and bulldozing, essentially. Tell me a bit about the inspiration for it, because you grew up there. You, you would have known the history of Montreal's Chinatown as well as I do, if not better, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess like part of the inspiration for the film was the fact that, you know, I'm I'm mixed race, but I on my Chinese side, I'm fifth generation Chinese Canadian. So my family roots, you know, go back to the beginnings of both Montreal and Vancouver's Chinatowns. Right. Um, so I grew up visiting, especially Montreal's Chinatown, you know, with my family on the weekends. And, you know, I have these fond memories of, of going around Chinatown with my grandmother, who was born in the neighborhood. And, and at the time, you know, because the Exclusion Act uh, was happening and, and there were all these kind of immigration laws against the Chinese, my grandmother was one of the only children in the neighborhood. You know, a lot of other families weren't able to uh, be reunited or to bring their wives over to, to, to have children. So, so when I would walk around Chinatown with my grandmother, you know, she knew everyone and, right. and everyone would be ta- talking toy sen and letting her into all these places. But, you know, I, I had this kind of privileged viewpoint onto the neighborhood that was really, you know, it went beyond the kind of tourist facade or, or the shop windows. I would be let into back rooms or, or you know, apartments in the Chinatown. And, and I remember really kind of cherishing these in some ways magical places that, that I was able to to go into. So so I hope that the film would also kind of bring audiences into these places that are behind the the kind of storefronts that that we know and and really give people an insider's view of Chinatown. It, um, it, it, it very much does. I mean, I've been to the Chinatowns that you feature, whether it be New York or Vancouver, and and you do provide that. You do go behind the curtain, so to speak, and and it does offer an in, uh, a view of Chinatown that you mightn't get if you simply went down once, you know, twice a year. For lunch, for instance. Yeah, that's right. It, it's really from the inside looking out, like like May Lum says at the beginning of the film, like her view on Chinatown comes from looking through her shop window to right. the Chinatown. What did you hope? I mean, when you set out to do this, it, it's, it is a broad topic, and yet th- there are many similarities uh, between what's happening to these traditional Chinatowns in many big cities. What were you hoping to to highlight? Was it was it the, the threat? Because each of them face threats that are somewhat different but often similar. They're, they're societal, people are moving away, immigration groups have changed, developers love those downtowns. A lot of Chinatowns are facing similar threats, but through different tales in some ways. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think, it, you know, it was a real conscious choice to feature, you know, several Chinatowns in the film. And it was because I had noticed this pattern of, of similar things happening in, in all the Chinatowns, but also, you know, these patterns that have happened in other marginalized communities. So, you know, the film kind of really looks at this kind of intersection between urban planning and racism. Uh, quite frankly, and and be it all, you know, the history of expropriation in our own Montreal Chinatown and the or the, you know, them trying to build a 39 story mega jail in, in Manhattan's Chinatown to various gentrification pressures or economic pressures, like with big box chains coming into Toronto's Chinatown. So the film kind of looks at different Chinatowns, but how they're all facing similar pressures in, in the neighborhoods, but also historically how there is like, I didn't just want to tell a story about gentrification happening to a community while they passively watch it. I knew being with the Chinese community, having done a, a, a different film about 20 years ago about the fight for the head tax redress. Like I knew there was lots of agency in the different Chinatowns in the Chinese uh, community and, and also a history of resistance in those neighborhoods. So the film tells a historic story about, you know, generation after generation, different Chinatown fights that have happened where the community has kind of stood up and 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 uh, come up with different tactics and strategies to protect themselves. But of course, the film in the present day also unfolds during COVID. COVID came down especially brutally in, in Chinatowns. The, the business uh, closings that you can eat in restaurants all those things other places face, but Chinatown on top of it was stigmatized because the neighborhood was somehow connected to China, even though it's a historic North American neighborhood. And then, of course, there was this kind of uptick in anti-Asian violence that came down in Chinatown. There were incidents of violence. There were a vandalism. Every single Chinatown gate across Canada was vandalized in this period. So in a way, the, the past... And the present, you know, they do parallel each other because Chinatowns, the history of them, you know, Chinatowns were places that were uh, built on racism and, and immigration laws that were very racist. And into the present, the community was facing similar uh, kind of atmosphere as, as COVID was unfolding. You could tell by watching it that, that that it evolved as you shot it, by the way, because you could tell how much COVID comes into play all of a sudden. There, There is a certain, there's a scene in a Montreal restaurant that I've been to where there's a certain gloominess about the future all of a sudden because of the pressures that that, that the lockdowns have placed on many businesses in, in these communities. And then as you emerge from it, there's a, there's a, you get that sort of a sense that maybe some of that optimism is coming back, that maybe the future will be okay. But But it really is a moment in time as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, at the very beginning, you know, the film was going to be a kind of film about, you know, gentrification of a, of a cultural neighborhood. But I went down to New York City in March of 2020 for wow. a gathering. It was a yeah, gathering yeah. of Chinatowns against displacement. And of course, when I returned three days later, they shut down New York because of COVID. And at the beginning, I thought, oh, you know, we'll wait a couple of weeks, then we'll go back and we'll film. And of course, like we're into year almost four of this thing it did become evident that COVID was going to be a part of the story. And because of all the things that happened, the the violence, the, the, the vulnerability of the neighborhood, the businesses shutting down and all that stuff, it was really an important time to be documenting uh, the community or the communities. So COVID actually brought a new sense of kind of urgency to the story as well. 
Karen, there's a really interesting line in, in it from someone in Vancouver, if I remember correctly, about whether you want to put Chinatowns under a glass. In other words, you make them UNESCO heritage sites, you sort of preserve what's still there, and that's it. Or do you want to continue to have them be vibrant parts of the story, right? And and it's an interesting debate because if you've been to Vancouver, you know that there are you know areas like Richmond that have really grown up and become kind of the new Chinatowns, or at least the new, even bigger than that. Uh, what's your take on it? What did you walk away with from your experience of making this movie? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the, it was Andy Yan who who said that in the film. And, right. you know, ironically, like even UNESCO these days to get a UNESCO heritage, uh, you know, designation, they're looking at communities as living communities. And I think that's what the most important takeaway is, is, yeah, you can get heritage status for your Chinatown. These places are historic and old and meaningful because of that. But they're arguably more meaningful because they continue to be living places. So instead of putting something under glass and preserving it like, you know, like a taxidermied animal or something, you know, you have to think of the future of Chinatown in, in a way of, of conservation, like conserving. How do you take the best of these neighborhoods and, and steward those things into the future? And to me, I think I learned Chinatown is quintessentially the, the dream Jane Jacobs neighborhood. Right. It's it's human scale. Neighbors know each other. They look out for each other. There's a vitality to the the life on the sidewalk. And these are arguably like an urban developer's dream neighborhood. Right. Wouldn't we all want to visit neighborhoods like that in our cities instead of going to kind of soulless areas of the city that are just box chains or just luxury condos? Like, isn't it amazing to go to a place that still has character and is still on a human scale? So to me, I think those are the best parts of Chinatown. And that's really the stuff that you bring in with you to the future, you know, and not just for Chinatown, but for the neighborhoods of the future and the inclusive, resilient kind of neighborhoods that we want to see live in our city, survive in our city and grow in our city. Chinatown, especially the historic urban Chinatowns, it's their cultural heritage and and their history that is a key to unlocking their future. Right. Like you could are now, especially like in Richmond or wherever, you could get bubble tea anywhere in the city. You can get groceries, Asian groceries anywhere. It's not like in the past where you could only get that in Chinatown. But, you know, where else can you visit these family associations that have been operating for 100 years out of a neighborhood? You know, that lion dancing that has been happening for a millennia out of a certain neighborhood. The buildings um, and the organizations and the people in the historic Chinatowns are continuing traditions that have lasted generations. So it's more than just a transactional relationship with the place where, you know, you go there, you buy some food, you leave. It's about visiting your grandparents, having a place to belong, doing these kind of cultural things and, and seeing cultural practices happen that have been happening for centuries. And as a tourist, even, you know, I want to go to, you know, in Montreal, I want to taste the noodles that have been coming out of the Wings Noodle Factory or the fortune cookies since the 1940s that are made in that neighborhood and the restaurants in the neighborhood serve those noodles. I'd much rather eat those noodles than some chain Asian store that that's somewhere in a strip mall. Right. Yeah. So so I think yeah. those kind of things are, you know, the key to the both the tourist revitalization of the neighborhood and the survival of the neighborhood itself. And, and you pointed out 
in the film as well that that Chinatowns have historically gone through ups and downs and have always been under threat in some ways, uh, uh, and that this is just another chapter in that long story. I mean, we always feel like maybe this is the last chapter because of the changing demographics, and you know we see it in Chinatowns everywhere. The younger generations don't want to take over the businesses that the parents may have owned or the grandparents may have owned, uh, but there have always been challenges, and they're still here. They're still here. Yeah, I mean, I always see Chinatown, especially now having spent so many time, so much time on the ground in these places. Chinatown is like that blade of grass growing in the cement. You know, it's like it shouldn't be there, but it still is, and it's thriving. And I think there's some lessons to be learned from these communities that have this rich history of resistance. And to me, you know, it's true what you're saying about second generations, not necessarily taking over the business, people moving out to the suburbs, all of that has, you know, impacted the growth or or the decline of a Chinatown. But at the same time, you know, the film follows second generation business owners or fifth generation business owners who are really taking legacy businesses, historic places that have been anchors in their Chinatown communities and taking these businesses into the future. You know, in, in New York's Chinatown Wing on Wo porcelain store, it's the oldest thing in the Chinatown. But at the same time, it's the most vibrant and new thing in the Chinatown because Mei Lum, the fifth generation owner, she operates like an artist residency for young Asian artists from the LGBT community to continue to make culture and, and produce things and gather and be there. So this old porcelain store becomes a hub of new energy and new connections and new vibrancy in the neighborhood. There's these pockets of of new ideas coming from old things, like how to bring bring what's old and 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 make it new again. Yeah, that struck me. Your film is not, I mean, it, there is a nostalgia to it, but you'd be mistaken to walk into your film or to any Chinatown and only look backward. And Karen, I should mention you feature Wings Noodle Factory in Montreal in your film. I've been in there to to film as well. It is one of those places. Montreal's Chinatown, uh, speaking of blades of grass and the cement, uh, to to be enthusiastic and, and, and optimistic about the futures of Chinatown, to have grown up in Montreal, you know what it's like for a neighborhood to survive against all odds. So thank you so much for your for your time tonight. Well, thank you very much. Listen, today was one of those days. I mean, Harry Belafonte, what can what more can you say about Harry Belafonte and the kind of career that he had both as an actor and a musician and as an activist uh, for so many years? He passed away today at the age of 96 in Manhattan. He was called the King of Calypso. Uh, he died of congestive heart failure uh, today was announced. But what a life, what a career he had. ABC News entertainment correspondent Bill Deal looked back at his career. Best known for his 1956 version of the Banana Boat song, Harry Belafonte was a singer, actor, and social activist. Though he scored his last big chart hit in 1967, Belafonte's music found a whole new audience in 1988. That's when the Banana Boat song and one of his other big hits, Jump in the Line, were prominently featured in the hit film Beetlejuice. Belafonte was a major supporter of the civil rights movement, contributing money for the Freedom Rides. He bailed Dr. Martin Luther King out of a Birmingham jail and helped organize the March on Washington in 1963. Bill Deal, ABC News. Yeah, I mean, what are my earliest memories? Of course, the Beetlejuice stuff, uh, absolutely. But my earliest memories of Belafonte were on the Muppets. He made this well-known 
appearances only one back in 1979. Here's a here's a reminder of that one. And that all of us we're here for a very very short time, and in that time that we're here, there really isn't any difference in any of us. If you were to take time out to understand each other, and uh, the question is, do I know who you are? Do you know who I am? Do we care about each other? Because if we do, together we can turn the world around. Yeah, and that leads into the song, Turn the World Around. Uh, yeah, Belifonte was the son of undocumented Jamaican immigrants. He grew up in Depression-era Harlem uh, before conquering the music world, becoming the first artist to sell a million albums. Uh, he established his place in American culture as a hugely popular singer, matinee idol, internationalist, champion of civil rights, black pride and black power. From performing at JFK's inauguration to marching with Martin Luther King in the 80s, he became an ambassador for UNICEF, raising awareness about famine relief and HIV AIDS, as well as fighting against apartheid in South Africa. He then mentored many other young activists uh, through the 80s, 90s, knots and beyond. It is a long legacy. To look at at least some of it, uh, joining me now is Judith Smith, a professor emeritus of American Studies at University of Massachusetts, Boston, and author of Becoming Belafonte. Judith, thank you so much for your time tonight. Glad to be here. Yeah, tell me about, I mean, it is sad. I mean, you think about, there's been so much about said about him today, and it reminded you about what a special place he had in in so many facets of of American and North American and beyond of life as an actor, a singer, an activist, I mean, he 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 was a big presence for a very long time. He was, he was, and he thought about how to convey his vision musically and politically, and he stood up for racial justice and social justice. For a very long time, that's the consistent the consistent thread in his career is the political commitments and the performance opportunities that he seized and made use of and expanded as long as he could. Bring me back a bit because his upbringing was one of um, I mean he was he was born in Harlem right and 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 yes. spent some time back in Jamaica as at, when he was young but came back. So he sort of had his his feet in two different cultures, and he was able to he was able to express that in a way that I think is maybe underappreciated or not quite seen now the way it might have been back then. Well, you know, a lot of people assume that he lived in Jamaica, and right. the fact that he was born in Harlem and spent plenty of time in Harlem is like a missing piece of his family history. His parents, he lived with his parents. They were undocumented in Harlem. His mother took him back to Jamaica for an extended stay with her mother when he was about 18 months old in 1928 and 29. And then back again when he was seven to eight, 1934 to 35. And then she took both him and his brother back to Jamaica in 1936. And she hoped to find work in Jamaica, but she couldn't find work in Jamaica But she left the boys in boarding schools and came back herself to Harlem. And then she brought him back. She came back to get him and his brother just on the eve of the war when she was worried the war, World War II, was going to come to Jamaica. So he came back to Harlem in 1940. So he does have the advantage of being part of two cultures. He's very much part of the West Indian community in Harlem. But he also lives with his grandmother and has relatives and knows his way around some parts of Jamaica also. 
what what strikes me too is just his meteoric rise as a as a as a singer was was quite remarkable. I didn't realize he was the first artist to sell a million records, and that 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 he brought a calypso sound, which was completely unfamiliar, I think, to to Americans, and he essentially popularized it by himself in many ways. Well, there was a lot of exchange between New York and Trinidad, and there were calypsonians in New York who were recording in New York and. What Belafonte did was to popularize a kind of calypso that was somewhat different than what was being sung in the tents in in the island. He found his way to that music. He became a performer because he went to acting school. He wasn't able to get parts very much as an actor because there were so few parts for black actors. His first job that he got besides pushing racks in the garment district was as an intermission singer in a jazz club singing jazz standards. And it was a really lucky break. He was able to earn his living for a couple of years as a jazz singer But it wasn't really him in some way. He cared about the lyrics and jazz didn't care about the lyrics. And he wanted to do something that expressed his wider political vision. I mean, he recorded a song called Recognition in 1949 that was a kind of plea for recognition of Black people at the end of the war and a complaint of racial injustice. It has a little thing about lynching. So it's like a kind of a civil rights song. Um, it, and it did very well in New York, but not outside of New York. But it was part of his pathway to developing himself, finding this range of music that went under the label of folk music. So that folk music world is the thing that gave him the access to the work songs, the labor songs, the international songs. And he put calypsos as part of that music and When he came to sing at the Village Vanguard as a folk singer, the owner of the Village Vanguard had seen him perform a little bit, thought he wasn't that great. Somehow he got talked into featuring Belafonte and he remembered the performance as completely electric. The new way that Belafonte was singing these folk songs, he sang with a guitarist. His hands were free and his body was free to sort of enact, to have his body enact what he was singing about. And it was a fantastic breakthrough at the For Village him. Vanguard. Right, an, an electrifying performer and, right, right at the top of it all. And that's where he became, that's where his own performance style that he developed became visible. He That's when he really started to be electrifying. And he was electrifying in person, but not on recordings for a while. I mean, he did some recordings in the early 50s. His big breakthrough recording was the Calypso album in 1956. That was the best-selling LP to that moment that even outsold Elvis at that moment as an LP. I think Elvis's singles probably singles sold more, but as an LP. Yeah. Judith, from the, from the get-go, though, he has views about the way things should be, and he's willing to stick to them. And that wasn't always the case for artists at the in that era. He was very much a product of not only that New York folk scene, but he became a very important part of the civil rights movement as well. And that wasn't an easy, an easy decision for a popular artist to make back then. Well, Belafonte was part of the broad popular front left 
fighting for racial justice that historians refer to as part of the long civil rights movement that precedes mm-hmm. King's moment. So he was already engaged in protests against the post-war lynchings, various things that happened. And he found his way to the incredible artist, political figure, Paul Robeson, mm-hmm. who represented the broad vision of racial equality and internationalism And Belafonte was very closely associated with him in the late 40s and into the early 50s. Robeson sort of lost his public stage, but he maintained a relationship with Belafonte and Belafonte with him. As Belafonte became this successful performer, he also had opportunities to be in film. And that's the moment. I mean, King reaches out to him in 1956 just as he's come to New York to raise money for the Montgomery bus boycott, which was electrifying. This working class people staying off the buses, sustaining this boycott for months. It was just exhilarating and dazzling. And when Belafonte met King in Adam Clayton Powell's church, King asked him to help him. And Belafonte was very moved both by the account of what King was involved with and by King's humility. He didn't know very many Black ministers that were like that. And from that moment, he made a very important connection with King, which persisted as a close friendship and advisor throughout the time of King's life. But he also was extremely important to the radical students that led the sit-in movement. He was their hero. They sang a version of one of his songs when they were in prison for the freedom rides in Parchment Prison. They sang uh, Freedom's Coming and It Won't Be Long, which is a, you know, rewriting. song, right. So I just think it's not just King. It's broader than King. And it goes, it persists after King, but I don't mean to in any way. I mean, their relationship was really special and really important, and they were both really important to each other. So in many ways, Belafonte becomes this very pivotal figure in the civil rights movement because he, he does he does come from it from a long time. At the same time, it did it not put pressure on his career as well to be both political and artistic in the America of the 60s, even though that was quite common amongst the Bob Dylans of the world at the time? I don't think so. His work with King starts in 56. I mean, he's torn between his performing schedule and his benefit schedule. He's very, very busy. He had the energy of a superhuman in all these ways of keeping all those balls in the air. But I don't think that it hurt his performing responses. I mean, his live performance at Carnegie Hall was a huge bestseller and he performed in LA live. I I just think The identification, I think he became a kind of personification of civil rights for like white people, like a Catholic school in Minnesota wants to put Belafonte on the jukebox instead of Elvis. And I think it's because that it was a statement. Belafonte became part of making a statement in support of civil rights for many white people. So I think he somehow managed to bridge these divisions and represent civil rights to a broader audience than simply the ones already committed to the movement at the same time as playing a very important supportive role for people in the movement. He he paid for dark rooms so that the photographers of the civil rights movement could take the pictures and get them out. He just did all kinds of things that helped 
the young activists in the 60s. And, I, you know, I think really in the 70s, I think his audience is less, the world has changed and the audience is somewhat less committed to him. And he tells a wonderful story about performing in Europe. I think it's in Germany. And he's late getting there and he's made the people wait for two hours and they give him a standing ovation. And there he realizes that he is bigger than his particular connections to the civil rights movement in the U.S., that he is understood internationally as a kind of leader that really means something to people around the world. And his support for internationalism, his support for the anti-apartheid struggle, his challenge to the Vietnam War, all those things are part of the aura around him. He, he and King, I believe, speak in Europe against the Vietnam War, I think in 65, but then, you know, King makes his big speech in 67, but they go on that pathway together. You know, of course, by that time in his life, King is not nearly as beloved as he was earlier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, Belafonte was a very important support for him. Belafonte also came, you know, the civil rights connection supporting King also was tied in with the labor movement. And Belafonte represent you know knew those labor leaders and he represented that linkage between labor and civil rights and that also persisted past king great day and there are millions on the way we saw the injustices of our day and we stepped to the table i have a moral obligation to do what one can do to make a difference Judith Smith is a professor emeritus of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. We're talking about and author of Becoming Belafonte because we're talking about Harry, Bel Harry Belafonte today who passed away at the age of 96 and what a remarkable career, what a remarkable legacy he leaves behind. Um, as we go through the 70s, and you've talked about it too, he's, I mean, here in Canada, we get to see Harry Belafonte in the 70s, made some some specials for the CBC, which I, I think he he always enjoyed making. Um, and, and in the 80s, he, he there's, a, there's a new kind of, um, a new appreciation for him in some ways. I mean, a lot of artists got a little bit lost in the 70s, if I remember back. And then in the 80s, he's sort of once again, front and center as a UNICEF ambassador. He's raising awareness about HIV AIDS in Africa. He's raising awareness about the apartheid movement. And once again, and, you know, USA for Africa, once again, Harry Belafonte is very much at the center of things. Those issues go back for him. He started doing Africa work in like 1959. He he organized an artist boycott of apartheid in 1965. He was part of the Trans-Africa increasing attention to apartheid and boycotting in the 80s. He is just on the lookout for liberation struggles, and he persists in connecting with them in the 80s. He makes the film, I think it's in the mid-80s, Beat Street. He's yep. interested in the new in new musical forms. I know he goes to Cuba and he talks to Fidel about the new music and hip hop and stuff like that and sort of talks him into supporting that. He is continues to be very politically to use his political voice and his public access to call attention to inequities, to promote socialist efforts in various, you know, new socialist governments in, in various countries. So he, he just stays in there 
and stays working with younger people. He he works with Danny Glover. He has a very important relationship with him as they do political work in the 80s and the 90s. And in the teens, he does this work where he starts two organizations that do political work. One is he starts something called the Gathering for Justice, where he gathers people of his generation, civil rights and movement activists, to meet with younger activists to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline and to engage the new issues that are coming up and to make a generational, you know, to support the younger generation with the efforts of the older generation. I just want to mention that in the Gathering for Justice were three three of the leaders of the Women's March after Trump was elected. Three of them were young women who had been mentored by Belafonte. And then I think it's in the 2010s that he starts this organization called Sankofa.org, which is a way of mentoring artists to feel support, you know, musical artists, like he does it with Chuck D and Taylor Quelly, to feel support in developing their own political voices and sort of helping them as artists use their voice to demand justice as he said, artists speak truth. Artists speak the truth. They speak the truth to power. He he often quotes Robeson. That's the role, the mission of artists to speak truth to power and justice. And he's just extraordinary. I think in the places where he puts himself, he is not so well by the time of the Occupy movement. But he does an interview with Occupy to encourage them. He goes to Florida to after the. Trayvon Martin demonstrations and sits in with young people in the state house. He leads the gay pride demonstrations in New York and lends his voice to that, as well as disarmament. Everything yeah, is I mean, available right across. He, yeah, the tireless too over over the decades. I mean, I mean, I was one of the things that that's that struck me, and we were talking about this before we started, is that of course my earliest memories of him are on the Muppets, and it was interesting that that I think many many people from Gen X will remember him from those appearances. He was also still a very captivating artist, which made his ability to share and to share his messages and to share his to sort of continue his activism that much more appealing to a whole to continue generations of people because. He was still such a, a talented artist, right? I mean, that's what really struck me struck you about watching the Muppets is how at ease he was and how good he yeah, was. He was wonderful with the Muppets, but don't forget that his the use of his music in Beetlejuice, yes. which introduced him to another group of young people, mm-hmm. and his being sampled by many young hip hop artists continued to introduce his work to newer generations. You know, I think they they play Deo, I think, at the Mets or some New York sports. Them, yeah. So I just mean his work is still in public in a way, even after he was not able to sing anymore. He put himself there and other people put him there at his birthday parties that he's had in his 90s. Many, many young, wonderful artists have tributed him and have appreciated him how they should ask Santana was invited to go to the White House under Obama. And he felt like, well, I want to be a little bit critical. Maybe I shouldn't go. And and he talked to Harry and Belafonte advised him, go, but keep some of your war paint on, you know, keep yeah, your voice. Yeah. And I, I think that's like a kind of 
delicate negotiation. That. Yeah, he, he was he was uncompromising. I mean, in, in a sense, too. I mean, there, he did come under criticism for meeting with Hugo Chavez and clearly his meetings yeah. with yeah. Fidel uh, got him into trouble at certain points. He he had no love for uh, Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice or certainly George W. Bush. Yeah. He was pretty hard on Barack Obama as well. Yes. So, I mean, yes. I mean, I mean, he did he did get himself. He did come under fire at times, but he seemed perfectly willing to take the heat as long as it meant that he got to say what he thought. I think so. I think he didn't want to compromise. And, he, you know, what he said, I mean, he I heard him talk when Obama was running and he said, I don't know what he stands for. He cared a lot about the content and the political principles and the stance. And that's what he was looking out for. He did speak up beautifully, I think, against Trump and warning people about what could happen about going backwards. And of course, he maintains his ability to keep a critical voice and to remind and to call out and invite people to be part of the opposition, to be part of the movement, to challenge the things that are the directions he wants to criticize. And many of us want to criticize. Yeah. I, I thinking about it today, it's, a, it, it's remarkable how many different Harry Belafonte's what Harry Belafonte will have meant to so many different generations of, you know, I'll, I'll keep it at North America because here we are, but you know, for kids who grew up in the, for someone who grew up in the forties and fifties, they'll remember a certain Harry Belafonte. If you grew up in the sixties, a different one in the seventies, different again. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Judith, that he did have a connection to Canada, right? He'd done some stuff here. He was always yeah. sort of welcome here to talk about his thoughts and, and so on. And he, uh, he had a he had a a, a a soft spot for his, for the northern neighbor he did he he was able to perform to big audiences in canada after some venues he wasn't able to fill venues elsewhere so canada greeted him with open arms and he responded extremely enthusiastically to canadian initiatives and in the spirit of supporting the left in canada when he i think when he did the special on CBC, he brought with him, he often performed with performers from South Africa or from other countries. So he internationalized his own performance increasingly in the 70s. And he did that when he came to Canada. But he he felt very thrilled. You know, he loved performing for an audience. And he felt really thrilled by his reception by Canadians and wanted to reciprocate in kind. I know you. You know you've spent a lot of time digging around and diving around and 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 studying um, his life. What do you walk away with today? How should we remember Harry Bel- Harry Belafonte? Well, I'm moved and challenged by his long term commitment to placing himself on the side of social justice, to joining movements for social justice, to thinking of all that he could do to connect culture and social justice. I'm inspired by him and moved by him. I feel very sad today, but I also feel so appreciative of his lifelong journey and all that he gave us. I I think looking at his legacy, there aren't many out there who can compare, are there? He was shaped by a generation of actors and musicians that were part of this promise, you know, this 
felt part of a movement for racial justice and social justice after World War II. He was part of a group that included Lorraine Hansberry. It included Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee. Mm-hmm. He worked closely with John O'Killens, who was a novelist who worked for Belafonte. He, he was just part of a world. That world was precious to him. And he reconvened it with new people and with some of the old people as long as he could, and then with new people over and over again throughout his lifetime with movement comrades, with socially conscious artists. Those were the things that sustained him and which he helped sustain. And he continued to find people to work with in those ways. Well, Judith Smith, few have as good insight as you do on, on his life and legacy. Thank you so much for sharing some of it tonight. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful to be able to spend the day today thinking about him, talking about him. Take care.